Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Sabbath School From Home podcast. We're very glad to have you here with us listening to our discussion and uh, uh, glad also for the, the participation we get sometimes via um, our email address. In case I miss it at the end, it's uh, sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or feedback on our discussion or any ideas that you'd like to share, then please email us. We, we really like that. Uh, Ken is not with us today. Ken is uh, travelling interstate at the moment and isn't able to record. And uh, we've swapped Lachlan for Clancy. Hello, Clancy. Hello. Uh, I'm Cameron. Uh, I'm Luke. And we're going to turn to 1 Kings 17. The lesson this week is looking at uh, resurrection events uh, before the cross. Uh, the majority of resurrection events occurred uh, recorded in the Bible are before before the cross, aren't they? What ones occur afterwards? There's the one, the Paul, with the boy all the at the believers window. That, all of the believers that are resurrected on the same time as Jesus. Ah, yes. Which is only recorded in one of the Gospels, is it? Yeah. I think so. Is it Mark? I don't know. I'm sure we'll get there. Um, I'm preempting further discussions because the discussion this week... You're very confident about where we're going to get to in 20 minutes, can't you? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, uh, I think we need to read the, this passage. We're looking at uh, resurrections... Uh, before the cross, and we've picked one of the Old Testament passages and uh, one that we've not talked about, I don't think, yet on this podcast. So that's exciting. Uh, I'm going to kick off at uh, chapter 17 of 1 Kings, verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there'd been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Now, who's him? Uh, Elijah. Elijah. Mm. Uh Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and, and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply with you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, uh, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called out, And bring me a piece of bread, please. Uh, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and then die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and to kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. See, he said, your son lives. Then the woman told Elijah, Now I know for certain that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Uh, before we jump into our discussion, uh, this delightful sound of rain on, on a tin roof, just intruding a little bit on my recording. Um, 
the sound of rain is considerably less delightful um, than it was perhaps a couple of weeks ago. And I meant to say in the introduction that our thoughts are with the people who are, are being flooded out, but I'll, I'll throw that in now. Uh, <coughs> what we're witnessing... Which is, in, you know, really appropriate because this story is set in a time where it hasn't rained for three it years. It hasn't rained. I, it is a, a disaster of a different type, but, but there's still a community here that's that's in trouble and I was I was thinking as I um, read through that that uh, this widow's son wouldn't have been the only son dying in this village or this community at a, at a time of of drought um, there would have mm. been it was it was very tough times there's actually a lot more uh, in common between droughts and floods than you might think and as they tend to go in cycles which the story of Joseph teaches us quite nicely um, it's it's actually uh, pretty relevant. Um, I like the insight very much, Cam. That that this it's not like these are the only two people who are suffering because of the drought. It would have been thousands, tens of thousands of people across the the area. Yeah, and it does seem that God chose this widow. But the way the language plays out, I, I am confused in a way I've not been confused previously reading this story. Because God says, I have chosen a widow, and this is picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? When, when Christ is wanting to rebuke the Pharisees, he says, you know, the, there wasn't any widow in Israel that God sent Elijah to, uh, sent him to Zarephath. Um, and so there seems to be some suggestion, both in this story and the way it's referred to, that this woman was chosen. Uh, what it says here is, though, not that the woman's chosen, it says that the woman has been commanded to look after you, mm. and then when he gets there, the widow doesn't know anything about it. Yes. It, it's also interesting, I think, that we didn't read the verses before 7, but if you do read them, um, Elijah is sent to the widow not to look after her, but to be looked after. Mm. As, 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 you, as it says, you know, it's, it's quite clear what you're, what you're saying about what it says there in verse 9. You know, he's, he's told to go to Ahab and tell Ahab there'll be no rain. And then God tells him to go and hide in a ravine. And, and this is something I remember from childhood lessons because it's very vivid imagery. The ravens bring him bread and meat hmm. and he drinks from the brook. And then the brook dries up and God then tells him to go and stay with bread. The bread and vegetarian so, sausages, I think, from, from, from sanitarium tins, except they don't make them anymore. I'm going to revolt. Yeah, what a shame that is. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Luke, I derailed you. No, you d you didn't at all. I, I was just thinking that. I mean, the... he didn't go to the brook for the sake of the ravens either. E exactly. Yeah, this is a story about God keeping Elijah alive, primarily. Well, yes and no, because up up till this point, she would, she was at the point of death. She mm. and her son were at the point of death, and yes, we absolutely need to recognise that in the story, they weren't the only ones running out of food. But they are not quite the she is not quite the same as the ravens because the ravens are fine on their own. The ravens are not about mm. to die, but yeah, this woman true. is about to die, and her son is about to die, and would have earlier if Elijah doesn't arrive. I mean, and I it, think yes, I think, it's a very good point. I think it's interesting. I mean, you said Cam, your translation says that the woman had been commanded. In um, the New Living Translation, God says, I have instructed a widow. And so I wonder, like, the, the language that Elijah uses is quite confident 
you know, here I am. Can you please give me the the water mm. and the and the bread? Almost as if he expects her to recognize that this is the person God had instructed her to look after. Um, and I think her her response back. I swear by your God, I don't have anything. Um, it's it's just such an interesting conversation back and forth. Yeah. And also the whole like the element of it when Elijah says, "Don't be afraid. Do just what you've you've said." Make mm. make the meal that you can make your last supper, but first make a little little. I remember, I nearly said it exactly how it said in the the my Bible friends. Make a little cake mm. for me first. A little cake, yes. Um, yeah. And it's this sort of. It's almost like just she- how terrifying that is. Like, yeah. I mean, mm. I, yeah, there's the element of I'm going to die anyway, but also you know this is the last meal, and first make some for Elijah. It's almost like she's not really on the same page as Elijah until after mm. her son's resurrection, resurrected, because she says, "Oh, now that I know." And so this, it's this conversation at the start. You do get the sense that um, that he's assumed that she knows things that she doesn't know, and that there's sort of a conversation initially that's that's talking past each other. Mm. Uh, mm. There's a delightful little clip uh, by a British comedian uh, Michael McIntyre describing a, a trip to Ireland at, at a time when a notorious uh, escaped criminal was on the loose um, in England. And uh, it just so happened that during the same uh, period of time, a penguin had been stolen from a zoo in Ireland, in Dublin, and hadn't yet been found and relocated. And it led, he said, to one of the most uh, bewildering conversations he's ever had in a taxi. Uh, where the taxi driver said, ah, so do you think we'll find him? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, I think we'll find There's a lot of people looking. Oh, yes, there's a lot of people looking. Um, poor little fellow. And Michael says, well, what do you mean, poor little fellow? He murdered his wife. Um, and the taxi driver said, well, really? I didn't know this. Um, and it took them about 10 minutes to work out that one of them was talking about a penguin and one was talking about a, an escaped criminal. But she doesn't seem like she's fully on board until the end of this story. Like she's on board, and she's obviously seeing a, a miracle. Well, but um, there's that exclamation now that I now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from I, your mouth I is mean, true. I mean, she's got she's got no reason to. She's out. She's very clearly outside of Israel. Mm. Oh, that's... So it's a why should she know? I think it's interesting that she repeatedly refers to him as man of God. Um, the thing that I, I think that it is the, there's the most powerful line, the most interesting line in this story for me is in verse 18. And after her son becomes sicker and sicker and finally dies, she says to Elijah, man of God, what have you done to me? Did you come here to point out my sins? Did you come to kill my son? And the fact that she blames Elijah for the death of her son, who the son that she was expecting to die. Yeah. From that passage, it seems because she's a widow, does she imagine then that she's lost her husband because of her sins? Is this some, does she have some, you know, she's already experienced hardship. Um, Does she feel that that must be a result of bad things that she's done, that that she's the subject of sort of divine retribution? I mean, I don't think you can, that's a lot of sort of saying things that aren't there. Um, I don't know if you can draw that out of the, the passage, but I think what you can see here is that you know she was a light. She she was expecting to die. She was preparing their last meal, 
and she was telling him, we are going to go eat this and we're go- then we're going to die. And then Elijah makes this promise to her because she was sure she was going to die from lack of food. And yeah. he promises her, don't worry, the food and the water is not going to, the food and the oil is not going to run out. I'll make sure that they don't. I promise you that they won't. But then that's not what her son dies of. He doesn't die of starvation. He dies of something else. It's almost like she resents the false hope. Absolutely. So it's like Ooh. you've promised me that we'll be okay, and then my son's died. Like, have you have you caused brought down a called down a curse? Is this you've done this? Well, actually, that's a really good point because she would have been dead had it not been for Elijah. And Elijah is maybe not the the cause, but the agent of her salvation. So obviously, it's Elijah's doing that her son's died in her eyes. I mean, he's, well, he's made the food last, so he's made the food he last. can do things. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And if they have been preparing this last meal, presumably they've been delaying that and stretching it out and stretching it out and stretching it out and stretching it out and stretching it out. So there's going to be many, many months of of worry and angst and fear. Well, and hoping that the rain's going to come. And hoping that the rain's come mm. and then it doesn't come. Um, she's very vulnerable. I just had mm. a, a thought too on this... Uh, concept of there being she wasn't the only one in trouble that's actually a point that's made quite explicitly doesn't Christ say there were many widows in Israel is that the phrase it's not saying there are many widows who are about to die of starvation it says that you know many God sent I think Jesus is making a comment Jesus is making a comment I think there on yeah I can tell you what it is um it's I think it's Luke 4 26 um but it's. I think Jesus is saying there that God that God found faithfulness outside Israel. Yeah. So the context is, um, the context is when Jesus. I hadn't remembered this part. The context is when Jesus is preaching in his hometown, and they're not having a bar of it, mm. and mm-hmm. um, they're like, "Hey, do something fancy, um, put on a good show." And he says, "Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown." I assure you. So it wasn't to the Pharisees, it was to his home community. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. So the inference is that some of those widows in Israel would have been doing it tough. Uh, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. I don't... What I'm about to say I'm not fully comfortable with. Um, I'd hesitate to endorse it completely, but I wonder if there's some element to it. Um... Uh, God seems to respect the dignity of causation. Um, if I say, I think I will choose to do this, it's very rare that God steps in to stop it. Um, and when he does, it is in a way, like in the story of Balaam, where he still allows for individual choice and agency and all the rest of it. And one of the problems is that Israel, not exclusively, oh, sorry, not completely, but by and large, Israel has turned from him. And he has warned them that if they do that, there'll be famines and droughts and all the rest of it. Um, is is God making a point by sending Elijah to help someone who's not in Israel? Is God saying is God saying, well, I'm not going to send him to someone in Israel, even though there's heaps of widows there who are in trouble, because uh, maybe not individually, but collectively as a society, they have knowingly brought this on themselves, and I'm I'm going to send Elijah to Zarephath. Uh, I'm not sure if I... It, it seems to paint a slightly more vindictive picture of, of God's action than I'm comfortable with, but um, I wonder if there is some element of that. 
I think I think especially in the context of that Luke four passage, because then it goes on to say many in Israel had leprosy in the time of Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman the Syrian. And I th- I mean I think Jesus's point there in using those stories is to say, you you know you, you know that you're a special p- p- people of God, hmm. but look what God does outside of Israel. Hmm. Look what God has done. The specialist things that hmm. God did in the times is, of is those it- prophets. Is, is it outside any of Israel. Also, to perhaps the faith of those individuals. Um, I think yes, that's true. Maybe with the story of Naaman, but even then, the story of Naaman is more the faith of the servant girl. Right, um, but I'm because I'm just I'm just thinking about here, the widow, when when she says, I mean, she never doubts. I mean, she says at the end in twenty four. Now I know that you're a man of God. The word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. But she calls him, as you said, man of God the whole time. She believes that the Lord his God lives. When she blames him for the death of her son, she clearly believes he has the power to make that happen. Mm. So in, in every... And she does what he says when he comes and tells her to, to, to do stuff. And and so there is faith there. Um, I mean, that's that's true. I think that's true, but I think in the... I think... The way I would flip that around, it in, in both those stories, and both those are stories of sort of salvation stories, she has her son returned to her, which is her salvation as well as her son's, because it gives her, because mm. without a widow without a child, without a, without a son is going to die. Mm. Um, and Naaman had leprosy and was going to die. And in both these situations, they're salvations. So, but with this... She's done nothing to sort of, and I'm doing air quotes, merit this miracle happening. Yes, she says, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have anything. And then he, she does do what he says. But, I mean, what's, what honestly is, is the fundamental risk in making him some bread first? It's their last That's meal true. anyway. That's true. And then well, she but, does say, but, I mean, that's a common, as surely as your God lives. That, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a turn of phrase. phrase. She does nothing, and then she accuses him of killing him, so the, killing her son. So the point that I'm trying to make is this is a story of totally unmerited grace. Well, all, yeah. all grace is totally unmerited. I know. Yeah. That's the, that's the point yeah. I'm making. Yeah. yeah. That and this is not a story. This is not a story of, look how amazing the faith yeah, of yeah, this, yeah. the widow of Zarephath mm. was, and that she believed so much and so God saved her son. It's not, it's, that is not the story. And I think that's what makes Christ's reference to this story so galling for the people who were listening to him. Because yeah, exactly. this, this woman hadn't really done anything to deserve Of course, the people listening to Christ felt that they did kind of deserve it. as They deserved a miracle. That's more or less what they said. Hey, we're in your hometown where your buddies do us a miracle. Um, you know, we're part of the elite. And um, this widow isn't. And at Naaman certainly isn't because he's mm. the commander of the army that's been, you know, raiding the Israelites. So uh, uh, it's even more pronounced there that he's he's very much undeserving. In fact, Naaman is undeserving in lots of ways because Naaman is also less willing to obey than this widow. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So that's an interesting comparison there. So we don't, we don't have time left to talk about this, but Clancy, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on it. We, we've had discussions on the podcast before of the, what exactly is the nature of faith and how does it relate to miracles? Because there are parts of the Bible, or certainly ways of interpreting parts of the Bible, 
and and even direct quotes from Jesus about faith the size of mustard seed, etc., that that do imply. I'm not saying I agree with this, but a lot of people believe it, and a lot of people teach it that that faith is somehow a prerequisite or or a conduit for miracles, and the greater the faith, the greater the miracle. I mean, that's I. You can see why people say things like that because, especially, um, Jesus refers to that a lot. Mm. In a mm. lot of the, a lot of the, you know, Jesus's healings, they're connected to. Do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that you're that I've forgiven your sins? Do you believe these things will happen? But I think this is a different kind of story. I don't think this story either negates or, um, or a- approves of that perspective that faith leads to miracles i think this is a this is a different thing this is a different story i think this is a story of god's grace outside the borders where we think god should act i think this is a story of you know compassion because i mean the the that interchange between elijah and the widow of zarephath is just you know devastating Mm. you've come here and promised me that things are going to be okay, and you have killed my son. Like the absolute hopelessness in that. Yeah. How does she know that the food's going to last now? You know, he made this promise that they were going to be fine, and her son has died. Does that mean she's going to die now too? What, what, I mean, what, what's in store for her? He didn't. It's the this... son doesn't even die suddenly. He gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And mm. so in her mind, there would have been so much opportunity for Elijah to do something earlier on. I mean, the passage specifically says that he he got ill over some time, doesn't he? He grew worse and worse. Um, that seems to suggest some passage of time. Uh, I was uh, just thinking in my uh, mind, and this is a connection, which I'm sure is not news to you, Clancy, but I hadn't thought of it, uh, but with the woman of Shunem, um, that's Elisha, isn't it? It is Elisha. Yeah, and Elisha more or less doesn't... Well, uh, Elisha intervenes for the child's life twice as well once once for her to fall pregnant and once when he dies and is raised raised back to life correct yeah correct hmm. and his his he sort of mimics the actions of elijah but he it does not three stretchings out it's seven but though and the mother says the similar sort of thing she 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 almost says the same thing to elisha as this mother says to elijah she places the blame on him yeah the feeling, the feeling I get is that, um, and I don't know how comfortable I am with it, but the feeling I kind of get is that, by and large, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world, and and God respects the dignity of causation. Um, he's created a universe with two things: a capacity for uh, chaos and randomness, and a, a and and a capacity for order and structure and both of those at various times caused sometimes bad stuff to happen and he created free moral agents and and i i guess that's why we want it to be but you know it begs the question okay but what does god really think what what does he really want and in some of these stories where it's true there were many widows um that god could have helped and he only helped one but it's a little insight into what god would would like if circumstances were different for him to be able to do um so it's it's uh it's not necessarily a rule that will predict the way you always behave so i was thinking luke about your your comment leading on from previous discussions we've had about faith maybe faith is a um necessary condition for a miracle but it's not sufficient that's a 
what a mathematician distinction would make. So uh, a faith is necessary for the miraculous to happen, but it's not sufficient to ensure that it always will. Hmm. I mean, it's funny That's because it. the other the, the lesson this week also references the resurrection of the widow of Nain's son in ah. the life of, of Jesus. And there's, there's, sort of, there's no action of faith there. Jesus is met by a funeral, sees the grieving mother, and resurrects her son. Mm. And that's in that's a very stark contrast to most of Jesus' miracles. He doesn't. It's not a yeah. It's and but I mean it, that reminds me a little little of this. You know, Elijah sees the grief yeah, absolutely of the mother, and so gives the mother back the son. It's 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 more a, a yeah, it's expression compassion. Of compassion. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah, that Elijah Elijah says, "Give me your son." And at this point, he's obviously a bit upset, and he hasn't quite worked out what God is going to do. He seems to be in some doubt because he takes the son up and and effectively passes the same complaint on. The widow says, why have you done this? It's absolutely ridiculous. It's contrary to what you promised. It's contrary to your, you know, what I've come to expect from you. You've been ensuring through miraculous some power of your God that the the flour and the oil aren't running out. That's great. And then, and then my son dies. And Elijah more or less says, well, what have you, what have you done against um, uh, this woman? What have you brought against the widow? Uh, why have you done this? And and God doesn't say to him, uh, it's okay, I'm going to bring him back to life. Just do X, Y, Z and wash in the river three times and then whatever and it'll be fine. Uh, he says a prayer, he says, God, this is ridiculous. This is, what have you done to this widow? And then he says, oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Mm. And and the Lord hears Elijah's cry. Uh, and we commented, Luke, in in the story that you brought to our discussion. I can't remember if it was even this quarter, but the one about um, Elisha and the chariots of fire. I think I think that was the one, wasn't it, where we were talking about this faith, the context of um, miracles and faith, with Elisha and his servant looking out at the hills and the chariots of fire. Um, that in that, yeah, yes, oh, yes, 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 not the chariot of fire that he went. No, 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 no. The hills, the the army arrayed on the hills. Right when the army is coming yeah. to, to find him, and, um, yeah, he opens the, the scales fall from his yeah, yeah, eyes. yeah. No, he opens his servant's eyes. In in that story, also, God more or less just does what he's told. Well, yeah, <laughs> which I always find it it difficult when the story is told that way. Well, this one's. Told I mean, that I, way. you can you can look at it that way of you know. But you can also look at it just both like the desperation in his prayer, like God, I promised this woman. Mm. Like it's oh well, you know, it's a, it's a. Yeah. I don't think it's a God. Now you've got to do this. No, I, I don't. I don't think that's the case in this story either. This, this one is much more comfortable language in that God is is described as being the one who's telling people what to do and making things happen. Um, but I mean, the, the Lord heard Elijah's cry the, the lord hearing somebody is a common phrase mm. used when a miracle occurs um yeah i wish i knew more about you know the details of, of what that meant and how it was used and all the rest of it i think and- i mean this story is often often gets used as a preamble to uh what happens after because cha- chapter 18 of First Kings is Mount Carmel and the fire from heaven mm. and burning up the sacrifice and the water and the rocks and everything, and I think that's such a disservice to this story because that it gets 
it gets written as, look, and, and this, this miracle, and I've heard this, this miracle boosted Elijah's confidence because, you know, she said at the end, now I know you're a man of God and God speaks through you, look. And so he goes all like revved up. Look at me. I can resurrect people off to fight Ahab and the prophets of mm. Baal and I'm so great. But I think that's, <laughs> that's not fair because it's really, I mean, sure, I'm sure it did. I'm sure he was felt amazing when that happened. But relieved, relieved. But the, I think that perspective kind of eclipses this more straightforward reading that this is yeah. this is a an act of gracious compassion. Yeah, outside outside the borders of Israel. I get the feeling that Elijah probably didn't stop to think that he'd just been the agent of a miracle. He was just so excited mm. the boy was alive. Um, well, I mean, he he prayed. Uh, God did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think Elijah had any delusions. He, yeah, he, he doesn't come he out and say, "Look, I have resurrected your son." He says, yeah, "Look, exactly. your son is alive." Yeah. Um, one one thing that chapter eighteen, which I've been quietly reading, um, does make clear, which comes back to something you were talking about earlier, Cam, is that Elijah's probably outside of Israel because Ahab's been looking for him everywhere. Mm. Oh, um, that's and that's one yes. of the reasons why he's being hidden far away which is not uh, doesn't contradict the other reason why he yeah. might be outside of israel they could they can coexist yeah. um, um i just noticed too i'd always imagined in my story i don't know why that elijah spent months and months and months and years at the brook and then just popped over to the widows near the end but it seems to be although no times that are living he stays at the book till it dries out which may not have been very long if it was a brook which seems to suggest running water um and then he goes to the widow, and then at chapter 18 it says, after a long time in the third year. So the inference mm. seems to be that Elijah spent most of the time. He, he would have become a part of this household and mm. a, you know, a mentor and a confidant to this young boy whose life is saved twice. Um, he would have been part of the village and the community. Presumably he just didn't spend three years sitting on his backside looking out the window. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Clancy, it, it's it's a story that totally deserves to stand by itself, not just as like a setup for mm. the big fight in in chapter eighteen. Mm. Um, it, it's it's really significant. I mean, in some ways, it's more significant. Nobody gets resurrected in chapter eighteen. And that's generally considered to be the kind of greatest miracle. Mm. And and I I love that it's the greatest miracle is done for the widow and her son out of compassion, you know, and that's, that's more, they get the greatest miracle and Ahab just gets some fire <laughs> from heaven. And, and, and the rain. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the rain. Um, you know, it's interesting. That it's quite possible that God has a different perspective on things. I remember something, um, uh, a conversation I had that's been really formative on a good number of occasions since, um, when I was at college for second year and there was a youth congress that had been organised which was going to be held on campus and um, it, they ended up cancelling it because they only had 50 or 60 people apply to go. Um, and I was talking to um, a good friend um, who reliably, you know, one of the people in my life that I'd describe as godly who surprises me often with perspectives where I think, ah, oh, yeah, maybe that's what God thinks. Um, but I, I was talking to her and um, mentioned, I said, oh, isn't it sad that they had to cancel it because there's only 50 or 60 people there uh, going to come? And I was meaning it was sad that only 50 
or 60 people that were going to turn up. And she interpreted it completely different. She said, yes, yes, absolutely. It's very sad that they cancelled it. They definitely should have cancelled shouldn't have cancelled it. Those 50 people could have had the most amazing experience of their lives. Um, and I thought, yeah, well, that's the different perspective, isn't it? Um, and, you know, God does sometimes do big, impressive things for, you know, sometimes Christ feeds 4,000, 5,000 people. But very often it's, a, you know, like the widows of Nain's son, it's a small, perhaps incidental, and again, that's another occasion where it's a spectacular miracle, and it happens more or less on the side, and it's just for that person who's obviously very precious to Christ. Um, he doesn't draw attention to the miracle. He doesn't stay in the lady's house and instruct her for three months and use it as a sort of ma massive publicity or, or pedagogical exercise. It's just that moment of compassion and, and help, and... Uh, and I've been critical in the past on this podcast and in other discussions about the emphasis we have on, on personal relationship with God because everything in our society is personal, personal, personal. And we, we don't talk very much about collective relationships. But stories like this do really suggest that, that God is interested in persons, not just cultures and societies and political systems. He, he really is interested in people. And I think if we look as a sort of as a closing off of this is if we look at how that reference we pulled out earlier, how Jesus uses this mm. passage, this story and, and the story of Naaman in that God is always more compassionate than we are. Mm. Oh, that's good. Clancy. I think that's a very good thought to uh, end on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do that. Thank you so much to you, our listener for joining in. Uh, feel free to share this podcast with anyone that uh, you feel may benefit. Uh, you might have friends or indeed enemies that might um, enjoy this podcast also. So please feel free to share and, and you can contact us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and uh, please join us again next week.